Welcome to another episode of Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dan. Today, I'm joined by Mustafa Youssef. Mustafa, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's my pleasure being on this show. It's a pleasure meeting you as well, Leo. I love what you do. Your app is fantastic. You've learned how to grow uh, into an indie developer over the years. And you're the second interview this year, second part of our series of interviews with indie developers and getting their perspective. So I'm really happy to have you on. I'll let you go ahead and start by introducing yourself. Okay. Um, I guess, um, obviously, my name's Mustafa and I hail from India. I initially used to work in Bangalore, but I'm originally from Mumbai. But during this pandemic, I just found a way to come back home. So yeah, now I'm working out of a bedroom with a desk and I get as much work as I can get done on a bed. Um, and <laughs> as far as things go, um, I have been, I, I got into iOS app development back when Swift started. I tried giving it a go when there was Objective-C still there, but it, it just didn't go well with me. It was just too complex for me to comprehend. And Swift launched and that was a really good place to start off because the whole world was at one level, right? It's new for everyone. And I just jumped out on that. I got into, you know, there was a book by AppCoda, which was launched, you know, just at the very start. I took that and I started learning bit and bit by bit. I was programming early prior to that, just some little Java here and there, you know, drawing those patterns and asterisks and pyramids and all of whatnot in school, right? And uh, since then, I got into iOS. And then during college, you know, we had a fest coming up. So the fest required an app. And then we had, you know, various college activities. And I just used to build apps for hackathons and appathons that there were. And nice. that's how I got into iOS, right? I find it interesting that you're, you found Objective-C challenging and your background was, was in Java. What other programming did you do before iOS? So a little bit of Visual Basic, Java, Basic C, C++, um, but it wasn't yeah. to build apps or build anything concrete, right? It was just to learn basics and I just enjoyed it. Like in right. our school, we were just taught, you know, build the Fibonacci series using, you know, uh, you know, write your code in Java and just build Fibonacci series or build this really complex pattern. And uh, that was really fun. It was challenging and I enjoyed it as a kid, right? Um, I think I started coding back in the ninth grade. Okay. That's awesome. That's awesome. So did you go to school in India? So yeah, I did most of my schooling in, in like all of my schooling in India. And I kept hopping between boarding schools. My parents were fond of me going into boarding schools and I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I don't find it as a punishment. Good, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> most kids think Your of it as a punishment. parents enjoyed it. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like a second break from them. Um, break for them right um the first yeah. they have the kid for so long and then the kid goes up to boarding school and then there's like oh, we have no kids at home right <laughs> i'm curious I, I think you're my first guest like in india working in india what are some things those of us in like the western world and the anglosphere don't realize is different about developing in india so the, I, I'll, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very different thing working in India because, you know, concerns like mental health and all of these things don't exist over here. We've been taught from day one to just, you know, like work, work 24 seven all the time. Like I didn't have boundaries. I used to work nights and, you know, long nights and sleepless hours and all of these things. And slowly when I started opening up to the world on Twitter and all of you know, the developers across the world, right? And uh, being more active with the West, 
you know, people out in the West, right? I started realizing that this thing, you know, there's a boundary between your professional space, your personal space, and all of these things. In India, like, you consider your work as your family or an extended family and people take yeah. it too literally. So I think, uh, but now at least these uh, these misconceptions, right, of how a workplace should be, it's uh, people realize this back in India and now it's become much healthier, but starting out, it wasn't as healthy as one would think. Yeah, I've heard that before in uh, some other countries, especially in the Far East that tend to have like work and personal life, like the priorities are not, quite the same as they are here in the in the west or at least in the u.s so i find that interesting it's, it was the same case in india as well yeah the competition is brutal like every other person like like the amount of android developers ios was you know there were not so many ios developers in india at least back when i started and there were quite few because it was a very small niche and the requirement to starting out as an ios developer is that you buy a macbook right and I was going to say that, yeah, that Apple sets quite quite a high uh, price on being a developer exactly. outside of just just the hundred dollar fee, right? Yeah, yeah, that is one of the big challenges. So yeah, there are a lot of developers, so you can always replace an Android developers. Things like quality, scalability are not co foundations for developers in India. Is just get the work done, and then we'll see what we have to do later, you know, to tackle those problems. At least the starting out mentality is that way, right? So like these conceptions are slowly start getting clear out. There's more quality work emerging. And as a as a young developer, no one taught me to think about scalability, think about, you know, writing good code. It was just about get the tasks done, however it may be. Hey folks, I want to let you know about a sponsor for today's episode, Revenue Cat. Revenue Cat has been a fantastic sponsor, and they're the perfect sponsor for our audience, developers like yourself. It makes it easy for app developers to build, analyze, and grow in-app purchases and subscriptions, whether you're doing iOS, Android, or the web. There's no server code required. With a few lines of codes, you can get in-app purchase infrastructure, analytics, and integrations without managing servers. No need to check certificates or receipts. RevenueCat does that all for you. Are you integrating with several different web services? RevenueCat can do that. Do you need really important reports? RevenueCat has an awesome dashboard worth checking out. If you didn't watch our episode with Andrew Bodeo about what RevenueCat does and how complex in-app purchases can be, then you should definitely take some time to watch that episode. He goes over how challenging in-app purchases can be and why RevenueCat is such a great help for developers out there. If you're indie or you're enterprise, definitely take, take a look at RevenueCat and what kind of services they have to offer. It's very reasonably priced no matter who you are. So whether you need an in-depth dashboard, customer lists, filters, or segments for your different customer bases, are you doing anything with the Amazon App Store or other services? Are you providing on other platforms? Take some time, go to the link in the show notes below, and give RevenueCat a try. It's going to be really easy for you to integrate and get started. And thank you, RevenueCat, for sponsoring today's episode. It's interesting that you talk about scalability as opposed to like getting it done. Cause in our last episode with Charlie, he's kind of a get it done type of person and just wants to get the app out there. What, how far do you go in like architecting and being concerned about scalability and things like that, but also like not, not getting into like, I don't know, like an analysis paralysis. If you've heard that phrase before where you're like overanalyzing it and just not writing any code and not getting anywhere closer, but just over, over architecting, I guess, so to speak. How do you 
how do you judge that balance, I guess? So initially I had no clue on, you know, what architecting and all of these things were. I just learned that while coming, you know, while finishing my first job and getting into my second job, because initially it was, we need this feature out, just build it and uh, code quality. We didn't have code review or the first job I worked as an iOS developer, right? I was the only iOS developer and I, like I was learning just from myself or the sources that I could, you know, find on the net, but um, like architecture, you know, patterns or like, what do you call it? Uh, architectural patterns, MVP, MVVM and MVC, all of these things, right? They were just not uh, things that I was aware of. And it was just build this, get it done. Everyone is happy. No one literally complains. Your code is, you know, you can't scale for, you know, like at least on the app side, there's nothing so such in terms of scalability, but when it comes to building a backend or something, you have to keep right. scalability in mind, right? Right. So on app, it's at the end of the day, you're just developing for one person interacting, right? So, but um, yeah, building features, if code gets dirty, it's just about, you know, closing that feature and moving on to the next. Yeah. I think with a lot of, what's unfortunate, I think, is like with a lot of those patterns, you're easy, it's easier learning them after you've used them by accident, if you know what I mean. Where like you'll use MVVM and then you'll realize, oh, that's what I'm doing, or at least that's what I'm trying to do. And then the architecture kind of like, I don't know, it shapes the sculpture, it makes it a lot smoother because there's certain anti-patterns you could do when you're trying to implement MVVM or whatever that you want to avoid if you are going that route. So yeah. Oh, I absolutely get that because I didn't have any pattern I was following. I was just writing crude code right there. And then slowly mm-hmm. I started getting the perspective patterns and I was like, oh, this is much cleaner. I can just refactor this part of my code out and I get, you know, it's much cleaner. It's more legible. It's more understandable. So I guess I, I absolutely get the point that you're referring to, right? So my first big question is why why another to-do app? We have so many to-do apps. Why did you decide I'm going to, like, I have this great idea for to-do app too, but it's in my bucket. It's way down on my bucket list. And it's like, why, why would you ever do that? And then, well, we'll start with that question. Why did you want to do that? So it began, it began um, with my last job, right? I was working in a company, SignEasy, right? And we were using Jira and it was a really nice to-do app and I enjoyed it. And I wanted something for my personal use. And I, I tried looking, right. I love the Kanban approach because it just, it's just how I build or how I, how I work. It's like to do in progress, test, release and done. Right. It was just, tasks were not just to do and done for me. And most of the to do apps out there, you know, it's just to do done to do done. Right. You can add tags, you can add priorities, all of that stuff. Right. The one that um, I tried out was Trello. I, Trello is fine. It was just not that exciting to see every morning. I didn't like the blue background. I didn't like the glass cards and stuff like that. And I think I could do a better job. So initially it started with me making an app just for me, right? It wasn't to send it out to users because it was a simple thing. Just I just wanted have columns with my tasks organized in them. And then what happened is uh, I spoke with a friend and then, you know, I started getting thinking more and more about it. And then I thought, let me do this right. And then so I started asking people, you know, what are problems you face in your task managers and all of those things? Everyone has a favorite task manager, but they have a lot of buts associated with it. So I started focusing on those buts, right? I love this app, but it doesn't do this. I love this app, but it doesn't do this. So aggregating all of those thoughts, I finally thought I came to a point where, you know, I had the confidence of building another task manager. Yeah. I don't think day one, I thought I'll just build another to-do or task manager app. 
I got the confidence by hearing a lot of the ifs and buts of people. So I guess that's what it came. But initially it was just, I love Jira, but then I realized the pain that goes into setting up Jira because someone already did it at yeah. the company for me. Right. And right. I just wanted to think like, I just thought of something that I can make it so seamless and easy. And over time I got really excited. Like you had those one month sprints, the initial part of your product where you're just so excited about it. Right. I made sure mm-hmm. I make the most of that month, put it out to test flight and then let test flight pinch me to, you know, update it every then. So the app was built just across the course of two months. So within a month I had the test flight out and within a month of that, I just refined it and uploaded it. Now, do you have any other big apps in the app store? So I had, I, I have built multiple apps, but two indie, right? One is Lingo, which was this English learning okay. app. My wife doesn't uh, speak English. So I just tried to make an app for her. And obviously I had my entire product market fit wrong over there. I was just building an app for my wife, but expecting kids to use it. So that was a completely incorrect notion I had, or I didn't plan who the app was for, right? So it didn't work out for me on the app store. I probably made a hundred dollars off it, but thank God I made that app. Like I seriously, without that app, I don't think tasks would have been remotely as successful as it is today. So that was a big stepping stone. Did you build Lingo before tasks? Yes. So like you you said there, which I thought was really interesting, you talked about product market fit. What have you learned about that in particular? Because I want to I want to talk about that a little bit more. Because it seems like you you understand that like you need a market, uh, obviously, to like buy the app and you didn't have a good good fit there. What did you learn from that experience building Lingo that helped you understand how to f- better prepare a park product for the correct market it belongs to? Does that make sense? So, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So basically what I built out Lingo, right? I was making it for my wife, but expected it be easier enough for kids to use it. But it was not playful enough for kids. And I was all mixed up. I didn't know who I was building it for. I was just building an app because I liked the graphics. I liked how easy it was for me to use or if it was for her to use, right? But not keeping in mind the people who would actually use it. So I thought non-native English speakers would use it, but then I made it look so kiddish that someone you know, who is uh, a little mature in age, right? Wouldn't want to touch that app thinking it's just made for kids. So the first and foremost thing where I went wrong was I spent way too much time building the app and launched it very late. I added things like handoff and, you know, a lot of bunch of other features, which I just shouldn't have added. And exactly, I didn't know who I was building it for. I thought if the child is doing the quiz on the parent's phone and they wanted to move it to their iPad, right? Maybe handoff would come helpful there, but... I was not building a practical app. I was just implementing all the cool Apple technologies that I really wanted to integrate and impress folks at Apple. And I had a product made for no one. <laughs> I want to I talk a little bit more about you saying that you built too many features and you released it too late. So what do you, how do you filter, like, how do you filter out an idea early enough so you can kill that idea essentially before you waste too much time coding the the perfect app. You know what I mean? Um, I'd say you start out figuring out your MVP. Everyone knows this, right? The minimum viable product, you just build that out. But us developers, like at least indie developers, we can never stop at the MVP, right? We need to go like five features more or 10 features more. Like we have that thing that it's never good enough, right? And I had that same thing with tasks. I just didn't know when to stop and... Uh, I decided on this that, you know what, let me give the press a date. So 
four weeks, like uh, three weeks prior to just ending the development, I just gave the press the date that first of June, I'm going to launch. Now I had no choice but to launch it because something was at stake for me, right? And if someone wanted to write about it, so I just announced it officially on Twitter that first of June is the date and I will be launching it. And the set of features were just, so there's this 80-20 rule, 80% of the users just use 20% of the features and 20% of the users use 80% of the extra features, right? So I just tried to build it for the majority of users. So 80% of users, which use 20% of the features of an app, right? For a to-do app, it would just be basic to-do, setting reminders, you know, adding tasks, adding tags and priority, the very basic I just built out that so the core functionality is there. Anyone can use it and anything that is to come additional to it, right? It just complements the app. So the most popular features of any task manager, I just try to work on those and stop. Hey folks, I want to let you know about one of the sponsors of today's episode, App Figures. App Figures is the leading platform for mobile app makers to track and grow their apps, packed with tools for reporting, optimization, and competitive intelligence. If you watched our episode a few months ago with Ariel, you know how important it is to optimize your apps for the App Store. No matter how great your app is, if it's not noticed, it's not really worth your time and money to spend on. If you're making money, for instance, with subscriptions, you need to know and you need to stay on top of the numbers so that you can figure out what to do next. App Figures has worked all this out. If you're a developer, sometimes some of this app store stuff can be a distraction from creating and designing a really good app. But by bringing your core metrics to the forefront and calculating key data sets like MRR and churn, they make it easy to understand what's happening and why. And that gives you more time to really build your app and really design it well and grow your subscription business. If you're not sure where to get started analyzing your subscriptions, then check out the guides and the videos at appfigures.com. They have a really great YouTube channel I'm going to post in the links below. There, they do things like This Week in Apps, where Ariel gives you updates on different trends of what's going on in the App Store as they change, both based on the customers you have, but also based on changes to the App Store as they happen. And also, once you get to appfigures.com, you have no excuse not to give them a try. They have a free trial available that will help you get started on building your audience and help understand how to get noticed in the App Store today. If you like it, then you can use our special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. You have no excuse not to give this a try. Again, use the special code EMPOWER3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. I want to thank the folks at AppFigures for sponsoring today's episode. It's really interesting. I like that 80-20 rule. That was really good. How do you decide then what features to put in the next version? That's all. uh, So initially when the app launched, right, and users gave feedback, I just heard that feedback out, right? Because I had a really nice launch. And as soon as it launched, I got like around 100 or 200 emails that week. And I just heard what people said. And then I planned my next sprint accordingly and then added those features and then moved on. I think the initial two months, I was just primarily focusing on what I like. I am a user. I'm not the user, right? The user is the person who like the mass of users using the app. I shouldn't build the app that I want, but what they want, right? So the first two months was just aggregating what they require and trying to match it with what I want to see the app headed, right? And just finding the best of set, like the best set of features that work well to, you know, satisfy their needs and satisfy my plan for the top, for the app. So what are some APIs you've been dabbing into, dabbling into recently 
in like the new updates to tasks? So I've so I have had a continuous struggle with CloudKit over the months since it's launched. And CloudKit came up with, you know, new APIs for, you know, sharing zones essentially. That's what I don't have the I don't have the core data CloudKit sync, but I have a custom core data CloudKit sync. So I've right. been toying a lot with CloudKit and they keep bringing, uh, they've recently brought a new thing called zone sharing. And I accidentally already have my, you know, schema set up in that way. Now, in order to do that, I had to, you know, change a few things because it didn't meet the criteria. And I'm just having a fight with that currently. So yeah, CloudKit is one API that I'll be, that I'm actively working on. What are some of the biggest challenges and benefits to using CloudKit as opposed to like just running your own backend? Honestly, first and foremost, no signup required. I do not require any signup screen. I don't require to hold that user. User accidentally deletes the app. The data is still there. You know, there are a lot of things that I can just relax and stay calm about. I've realized some people don't have CloudKit enabled by default. So there's an option within settings, iCloud Drive. If you have that check enabled, only then developers can access CloudKit, not otherwise. Okay. That's an interesting bug, though. Like, I didn't realize that you can have CloudKit disabled. So that you probably have run into that then a few times where people can't even use the app. Or what do you do in those cases? So it works offline for them, but it doesn't sync to other devices. So, okay. And that's where core data comes in, I guess. Yeah, so core data just saves everything offline. But if they just enable the iCloud drive, automatically everything gets synced by itself. Okay. Now, how do you do the syncing, if you mind me asking? Like, because that seems like one of the biggest, that's like a what, like cache invalidation. It's just one of those big problems, this offline online syncing. How do you, how do you manage that in your app? So I guess uh, what you're referring to is conflict management, right? It's one of the toughest things to get right. Yeah, basically. And, yeah, like I, I'm no expert in that. I, I don't know how to resolve conflicts best. But fortunately for me, it's not like a editor where, you know, in real time, you could be collaborating on multiple devices or such. So the scope of having conflicts is much lower. So what I do is I just uh, against each field, right? I know which field you modified at the last time. So I just do a really, I guess, dumb, not so dumb check where I see whichever one you've latest modified, right? Say, for example, on one device, you set the title as buy milk and on the other side, you put, you know, buy cartons of milk, right? If cartons of milk was written at a later point, I'm assuming that's your intent. So I just override that with this, but it's it's a dumb, not so dumb way. If I was building a, you know, a, a document editing tool, I wouldn't have, you know, gone ahead and done that. But for... Right. For this, it just works out well enough. Yeah, that makes total sense. So what, you, we've talked about CloudKit and Core Data. What, what has been the most, cha- besides those two, what has been the most challenging API to deal with? Uh, that's, that's a fun one. I guess the most uh, fun slash uh, fun one to deal with has been Diffable. Diffable as like the uh, collection view Diffable data source and the UI table view Diffable data sources. Okay. Them coming in yeah. and saving me in, you know, doing like, because binding like UI to the state and all of these things were really hard in UI kit. At least in Swift here, it's so easy. You don't have to manage all of those things, right? But having Diffable come in, it was just, it was just a blessing. But then Diffable has its drawbacks with CloudKit because what Diffable does is it maps it with a, 
you know, the ID of the record and when CloudKit changes, the NS manager object ID still stays the same, but the data within it changes. So you have to differ below the past two years, like they had different updates where, you know, one, if you had animated as true set, it wouldn't refresh the cell essentially until of, unless the hash changes. So there were just a few bugs here and there. So now I have versioning if iOS 14 do this, if iOS 15 do this, because they fixed a bunch of things. But um, yeah, like I think Diffible has one of, been one of the best things that has come with it. And I've had some trouble getting it right. And the other one is UI compositional, UI collection view composition layout, right? Because I don't okay. have to do flow layouts like myself. Because that was a big relief. Having columns with vertical scrolling rows, rows mm-hmm. UI collection, you diff- uh, sorry, compositional layout. That Yeah, that that got me through a bunch of tricky UI. What's been like your, I guess, on your roadmap as far as like implementing anything in Swift UI or using any new features? So I use Swift UI extensively in tasks, actually. I'd say 80% of it like is built in UI kit. And 20% in Swift UI, but that 20% keeps growing at an alarmingly you know, fast pace, except for the core column layout of the core Kanban view, which I cannot just write in Swift UI just yet. And uh, there are a few limitations that I face into, but rest everything I'm trying to move to Swift UI because all my setting screens, they're just static screens, right? All of them already in Swift UI. Anything that has to do with um, my task detail screen is again in Swift UI. Anything that needs a, a Mac compatible layout and an iPhone compatible layout, I just resort to Swift UI because it just handles things a lot better than UI Kit does. That makes a lot of sense. So the the app, what platforms is the app on? iPhone, Mac, Watch. So the Watch app is complete, but uh, okay. there's a really tricky thing with CloudKit being on the Watch. As soon as you turn your wrist down, right, it the Watch technically goes in the background. And if you just enter a task and you just move the wrist a little sideways, it goes into background and CK operations are paused on the background. So you technically okay. need to have a long lived operation, right? And they just don't see. This is on balance. all the models? Uh, all the models. Unless okay. you are, yeah, so like all the models. So then as soon as it goes into the background, it just pauses CloudKit operations and you have to wait for those long lived operations to go through, right? And that delays okay. the sync at times and it leads to inconsistent data. You can check off something on your watch and it might not just reach your phone in time, right? And it might lead to a lot of um, icky states. So I just, I'm just trying to figure out how to fix that issue. Like I've spoken with an engineer at the CloudKit team, thanks to these tech talks, right? And these sessions that they hosted, um, they know about this. I don't know how they get to syncing it flawlessly. I'm assuming they have special privileges, but that's just the one thing that's bugging me. And just for fun, the other, like, um, like a few weeks back, I was just bored and I decided to make my tvOS app. And that just, in within three hours, I had a tvOS app running. And nice. it was just so simple and fun. Thanks to Swift UI. You know what? That, w- it, that would be like a good for like a conference room, honestly. If you're like, you have an Apple TV in a conference room and you pull up, want to pull up your personal Kanban, that makes sense. So I could see, I could see it. There's an audience. And the Kanban looks amazing on the TV because you have that real estate, right? You have all that space. Yeah, it's just so simple to build. And uh, SwiftUI made it so easy. And I have all my code written into SPM packages, which will build on all platforms. So I just have to reuse those components whenever and wherever I like them. Have you looked at doing a web interface for it? 
Oh man, uh, I don't think I'm ready for CloudKit JS just yet. Okay, I, I, talk just to me doesn't. offline. Oh yeah, <laughs> talk to me offline. I have I have ideas. Hey folks, I want to let you know about a sponsor for today's episode, Sentry. Sentry is the way to track errors and performance monitoring for your apps. With over 1 million developers and 80,000 organizations already shipped, Sentry has helped developers like yourself know whenever something is going wrong. They have some great new articles out on things like distributed tracing, front-end work that you're doing on, and they have great tools for iOS developers as well as server-side Swift. Take some time and go ahead and check out Sentry today and help get your app up and running and integrate it with some awesome error tracking and great performance reports. Go to Sentry.io and use the link in the show notes below to get started. Thank you again to Sentry for sponsoring today's episode. So what, what was the biggest challenge porting to different platforms? And where did you start? You started on the iPhone, I assume, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And then, yeah, what's the kind of the narrative of like each platform and the cha- each challenge that you ran into, I guess? So the iPhone and iPad, like they were just as smooth as you could code because I've been coding on those platforms for years, right? And okay. as soon as I moved to the Mac, which is like something I've never coded for, coded on or coded for before, right? Like, and it was just, uh, I just was fumbling with the UI so much. Cause I didn't know I, I use Mac apps all the time. Right. And each Mac app right. has its own unique, you know, design language. Like, you know, Mac has their own separate thing, uh, set of apps, which look completely, they look really good on the Mac, but they're not like native to the Mac design. Then there are apps that Apple has of their own. Right. Um, not so fond of how reminders looks on the Mac. So I was like, this is probably not the best example for me to start off with. And I keep looking for different, different inspiration, but it was just so hard to get it right because I wanted to use the third column on Mac, which you get right for when you click on a task, you see the task detail on the right hand, most pain, right? Like how Xcode has, Uh, uh, but it just didn't click or didn't feel right. So I struggled a lot with designing on the Mac. First of that was the biggest and the hardest thing for me to do. And, and you were I, doing this in AppKit or SwiftUI? Uh, just UIKit. Mac Catalyst has just come in, right? So I was oh, just, Mac Catalyst. Okay, yep. gotcha. So just uh, just using UIKit code over there, and it worked well. Like everything was compiling, everything was running because I have no dependencies, so that's a big relief. So as soon as like Catalyst is very friendly with native code, right? And as soon like the design was tough, then adding you know making it more Mac like that started becoming a little bit more tricky and I just could never, I'm still not happy with my Mac app, how it is. It's, it's good, but I believe there's like a ton of improvement that can go in there. And I'm just dedicating the next few months to, you know, building a really pro Mac application. So yeah. And then we talked about the watch. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about porting to the watch? So no, that's just the cloud kit concern. Everything else is just ready to go. Cause, um, but yeah, if I just get, a, it's just a matter of designing the interface for the smaller screen, I guess. Oh yeah. It's just, it's just so much easier building for the smaller screen. Like I have to redact a lot of data. I just show you tasks in chronological order. I don't have to show you all projects and all tasks and all of that. Cause you'd use your phone for that. Right. You just want to see what's next. And I have city shortcuts, so you can always pull in tasks you know, for a particular search filter that you require at any time from anywhere, right? Yeah. 
So what is the number one thing you think devs should know if they're going to start building their own app, their own indie app, and marketing it properly? So I would have never said this if you'd asked me six months down the road because I started getting into, you know, looking up on uh, a, like ASO and all of those things. So app store search optimization, you should actually know the audience you're building for and how popular that niche is. So like that is something really critical. If you're trying to build a really, really small app for a very small market, just know that, you know, how many competitors you have, what you're doing. Although these things don't like if if you really believe in the product and if you have you know, one particular differentiator or one major differentiator. Like if I just made another task manager app and I didn't have the Kanban or, you know, like the customizability, I could never take on things. Like I, no one would choose me over things, right? It's just impossible for me to compete head on with that. So just make sure that whatever app you're building out there, there are going to be a ton of apps out there. Just have one unique differentiator or one, you know, unique selling point. So that's one key thing. It's really good. I like that. Yeah, because that that's essentially what's going to differentiate you from your competitor. That one unique selling point, right? For me, against Trello, it was a native app. Trello is not native. I'm native. For things on me, it was just, I have this Kanban approach. Things doesn't let you do that. And I have better tagging and priority system. So other apps don't have this, right? So I had a differentiator among the top apps that, you know, and Todoist didn't have Kanban before when I started out. So to do is got the Kanban, Kanban feature this year, right? So I had it before them, but yeah, like that's my key differentiator. So just make sure that your, your space is going to be terribly crowded. Just have that unique selling point. Especially when it's a to-do app, yeah. Yeah, I got so lucky <laughs> with my name. I just went ahead and named it Tasks Like an Idiot. And you can imagine when it launched, people search Tasks, I'm nowhere in that list. I got so lucky that Task picked off and now it's ranking in the top two or top three. So if you search Task, you'll either see me second or third behind Microsoft and, you know, below Google. So that that was a luck component. But next time I go out, make an app, I'll surely have a name that is easily searchable, you know, more recognizable, easy to climb up the ranks. But Tasks, it was a dumb decision, but it just turned out to be right. So do you have... Is tasks and indie development, is that your full-time job or do you have a full-time job as well? No, as soon as task launched in June, I within the first week, I gave my notice period for leaving my full-time job and pursuing it full-time. That's awesome. What, what has been like the biggest challenge in making that transition to being a full-time indie developer and keeping yourself organized? I don't think I'm organized till date. I try my best to be organized, <laughs> but uh, it, it, it's tricky. Like you're doing what you love and because you're doing what you love, right? You just keep doing it, doing it without thinking about, you know, a lot of things like marketing growth and all of these things. And I, I ignored these components for a very long time. I just built features. I thought people want these features and I get two reviews saying that this feature is awesome. And I think I'm doing the right thing. Right. But giving time aside from development, right? To just make better app store screenshots or update your screenshots when you have a new feature going out, playing around with keywords, figuring out what's the best way to grow your product, figuring out what is a good price to price your product at, right? And one thing I've learned is if users are not complaining about the price, you're charging them too low already. So for the first year, no one complained about price like to me for tasks, right? And I was dumb enough to realize it's so late down the line. I could have probably earned a lot more if I had upped my prices a little bit. But yeah, these things, 
like we just we just turn a blind eye to these things and i think that's incredibly important if you're going indie you should be prepared to take down all the verticals and not just make an app how can you decide if it's the price is too high or the audience isn't there what are some good indications of that i think uh, gathering gathering early feedback getting a good test flight group those are like key okay. points uh like i got a test flight group of up to 300 people before even launching and that was a motivation for me or i knew i was doing the right thing because you know people joined and they were using it and they were giving me feedback so i think you can always know if there's a market for your product just by talking to people like okay if you post a cool screenshot on twitter right you just get end up getting 50 retweets just because it's a cool product so there are ways doesn't mean that if you don't get those retweets it's not a good product right you just have to mm-hmm. ask the right people and get an honest opinion from folks well Thank you Mustafa for coming on. This was awesome. And it was great to talk about your app. Where can people find you online? I think everyone can just find me on Twitter. It's the easiest place and it's where I'm active the most. I wasn't active on there until recently. Uh and th- I think that's the main reason why Task took off is because of me being active on Twitter. We'll put a link to your Twitter account on our show notes. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me, Leo. People can find me on Twitter at leogdion my company is bright digit. Uh if you can take some time go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening and post a review I'd really appreciate it. So our next guest will be Michael, Michael uh, Tigas from who's uh built several indie applications. Uh so you'll want to check that next episode out. Uh also like and subscribe if you are watching this on YouTube. Thank you so much for joining us and I look forward to talking to you again. Bye.